Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Today, we have Georgia on our mind. The state went blue for Biden and Harris and then shocked pundits by electing two Democrats in runoff elections a couple weeks ago. A major player in those efforts was Georgia State Representative Scott Holcomb. Scott's a veteran, a lawyer, and one of the most thoughtful and earnest elected officials you'll ever meet. We talk about the state of democracy in Georgia, why he chose elected life and how he maintains his integrity and sanity while he does it, what's next for him and his state. He's just a really good person. Listen, and I guarantee you'll feel good about politics again. Representative Scott Holcomb, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's really fun to talk to you. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be with you. So. You are a representative in the great state of Georgia, which just, at least for me, shocked shocked me, shocked the world, and potentially changed the course of our country a couple weeks ago. Looking back in your Twitter feed, you on election day said uh, you weren't worried. You felt like things were going to go well. What were you seeing on the ground that, that led you to have that confidence? And what does it feel like to have uh, that momentous victory? Well, it's a, it's a great opening. And it was a long time coming. I think that's where I would start with. And I think anybody who's been involved with Georgia politics for a while would have to say that is we've been working towards these victories, both for President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris for a long, long time. And certainly in the last decade, we've put in a lot of work in terms of building the grassroots and our outreach. And so the the election with in November, I felt optimistic, and certainly all of the data that I was getting hinted at us being very competitive and maybe winning. But just to put it in perspective, I was <laughs> I was a surrogate for President Obama in 2008. I said the state was competitive. I was a <laughs> surrogate for President Obama in 2012. I said the state was competitive. Uh, I was a surrogate for. Um, Michelle Nunn and Jason Carter during their runs for Senate and governor, respectively, in 2014, and said the state was competitive. Same thing, 16 uh, with Hillary Clinton and then 18 um, for Stacey Abrams. And of course, Jason and Stacey are both New Deal alums. And so I've been on record for a long time saying the state was competitive and we're about to flip. So there was some angst there in terms of finally being proven right. And even a broken clock, right, is right twice a day. It was inevitable. You stuck with it. It was inevitable. It was inevitable. So the, the election night, to go back a little bit, is it was a little bit depressing at the beginning as that was breaking because the early votes were, were not going our way. But based on what I knew in terms of just being on the ground and following it really closely, I still thought it was going to wind up being really close. And then I knew by like Wednesday midday that 
Biden was going to win just because of the where the communities were that were still to be counted is those were largely Democratic. And you saw that you saw the waves sort of coming in as the votes were being counted. And then the real question mark was, could we do it again? Because generally speaking, for the runoffs, Democrats in Georgia did not have a great record for a number of cycles on high profile runoffs. We had not been successful. We really worked very, very hard. And I have to give a ton of credit to Senator-elect Warnock and Senator-elect Ossoff. They really ran very, very strong campaigns. They were all over the place. They worked so hard. They were very values focused in their messages. And I was really encouraged by what I was seeing in terms of the level of enthusiasm. And it was unlike anything I had experienced before uh, in terms of a runoff. So I felt like we had a shot. But all things being equal, I just wasn't sure. And leading up to Election Day and then on Election Day, sort of similarly, as I as I saw the numbers coming in, especially around 10 o'clock at night, I remember it pretty clearly. Both of the Democratic candidates were behind. But as I was looking at the map and I know my state, (laughs) uh, I I was thinking, you know, they're going to win this thing. And I was looking at where the votes were still to come in and they were all Democratic areas. And, And that's exactly what happened. And the votes came in a lot sooner than they did in November, meaning we we basically had a result late on Tuesday, early Wednesday morning, and it was it was something else. Like uh, I'm very very proud of both of them. I'm very very happy for both of them, and just so many people worked so hard. Stacey Abrams has rightly received a lot of credit, and one of the things that she has done, I think, quite exceptionally, has been to just organize and coordinate lots of efforts by lots of people. And so we're all moving in the same direction in a way with purpose, in a way with energy, in a way with enthusiasm. And and so it's it's pretty great to live in the blue state, I have to tell you. It happened sooner than I thought that it would. I knew it was going to happen, but um, I was kind of thinking realistically it would be more like 2022 or 2024. So I'm thrilled that I was wrong on that and, and that it was 2020 and 2021 instead. And with just insane consequences. As we record this, President-elect Biden has released an economic recovery bill that could you know, really help communities and individuals and small businesses who are struggling. That bill wouldn't even be considered if the election had gone a different way in Georgia. And so like it's it's a it's a massive difference for the country. So the you know the runoff election is not a common phenomenon. And I think we all know that it was implemented in part to reduce the strength of minority turnout. What do you think its future is in Georgia now that now that the Republicans got a result from a runoff election system that they didn't expect? That's a great question, Ryan, and I'm not sure how that's going to play out. There are a number of Republicans who, because they lost and they're just not used to that, at least in recent memory, is they're looking at tweaking all kinds of our procedures for elections and for voting. There's a lot of proposals in terms of 
restricting voting access, which we're going to have some pretty big fights over. I, I think it's an unsettled question on what we'll do with the runoff structure. Elena Parent, another state senator, Elena Parent, another New Deal leader, she's proposing ranked choice voting as a possible idea. I think that's unlikely to get through the legislature this term, but all those ideas I think are interesting. And and my own sense of just the people is that they're sort of tired of all the elections and there might really be an interest in having us get rid of the 50% plus one requirement. But I, I don't know how it will ultimately play out because the benefit of the runoffs is it, it limits to some extent the ability of the unknown variables of how many people get into a special election. And what I mean by that is if one party has like two people and they divide the vote and then the other party has a single person, those things all sort of influence who who makes it and sort of survives. And generally speaking, we have one of each party that makes it to the runoff. So effectively, it's just a jump ball, but not always. Another New Deal leader, Jen Jordan, she flipped a seat a few years ago because it was only Democrats who made it into the runoff in that instance. And that was because there were so many Republicans who got in that they split the vote. And none of them had enough to make it into into the runoff election. So I don't know how that's going to how that's ultimately going to go. And I'm I'm undecided on it, too. It doesn't seem to me like there's a really clear answer, especially in light of Democrats now finally having success with runoff elections. In my lifetime, if you had told me that a president would be calling a state election official to ask him to find votes to to overturn an election, I frankly would have never believed it. You've you've had a front row seat to watch democracy being pushed to its absolute limits or the, the laws around democracy and the norms around democracy. How do you think democracy has emerged out of Georgia, out of this election? We are very, very unsettled. From the November election, even through today, I've received a lot of messages and correspondence from people who really believe that the election has been stolen. That was brought about because of a dishonest president who just kept on lying and lying and lying about the results, which was predictable that he was going to do that. But it's had really consequential harm because people believe that the election was unfair, that he actually won. And and so there's a lot of people that want change. And I think that sentiment, of course, impacted what happened, unfortunately, in, in Washington, in our nation's capital, recently as well. So my lay of the land is that I think democracy triumphed. And from my perspective, granted, it's not an unbiased perspective, I think our democracy self-corrected with these elections. And I'll add briefly on the Senate results, which you rightly point out were extremely consequential because we had two Senate seats and that effectively flipped the Senate to where the president and vice president-elect can now pursue an agenda instead of just having the brakes be put on them constantly by, by Mitch McConnell. 
that path forward of of how people view our our democracy for many of our citizens is is broken and i don't know how you fix that easily and and it's especially not easy to fix when subjectively people think one thing but objectively that's not true so just to to sort of finish up with this and hopefully this will will help explain it is our secretary of state brad raffensperger he's a former house member he's a partisan guy in fact he's one of the most partisan people i met while i've I've been serving in the georgia legislature very very conservative absolute trump supporter same thing with our governor our governor brian kemp very very conservative uh total trump supporter and our state went through an audit. Our state went through a recount. Our state went through an audit of absentee ballot signatures. So it took all kinds of objective steps to try to boost the public's confidence in what happened. Plus, it's run by Republicans. So it's not like Democrats were running the election and then having a result that was sort of unexpected. These are Republicans who actually wanted a different result but said this is the correct result in terms of reflecting the will of the people. So I don't know how you, how you fix a problem that one objectively you can prove the right result, but subjectively people just choose to believe something different. And there's just a lot of reasons for that. And I am, I am pretty proud that I was one of the the leading voices for years pushing Georgia to update our system. Up until this election, we had, since 2002, these old machines, these DREs, direct uh, recording electronic, I think is what DRE stands for, but they were just electronic. They had no paper component. And we had those from 2002 through the 2018 election. and this system, among other problems, operated on a Microsoft Windows 2000 operating system, which wasn't even like updatable after 2010. It was wildly insecure and there was no paper record. So you couldn't do an audit. The machines would just tell you what the machines would tell you. Uh, We went to a ballot market device system statewide. Georgia has a centralized voting system And while I didn't love the new system, I favored hand-marked paper ballots, which most cyber experts will tell you that's the gold standard because machines could potentially be hacked. But the system has effectively a receipt. You get your printed ballot. You have a chance to review it. And when they did the recount, there are barcodes, but they use the printed names for the recount. So you could actually count every single person, every single vote from the machines, and then the absentee ballots, of course, are paper record. And you could do a 100% audit to make sure that the results match up. And what they found was the results of the, of the machines matched to the data that was provided by the machines in terms of, of the results. So it's, it's a mess. I mean, I wish I had a better answer for you, but that sentiment that the election was unfair, I don't think is going away anytime soon. And I think that's going to drive a lot of these voter suppression proposals that we've seen, unfortunately. 
Can you imagine if you all hadn't updated the machines and your machines were hacked and it was, you know, that was the difference for a presidential transition of power or control of the Senate with foreign governments? I mean, we would be in absolute crisis right now. It's uh, like, but for the grace of God, oh my God, I hadn't, I, I sort of hadn't thought about how close to the brink we could be. Yeah. Yeah, that that's very, very true. And just in terms of people's confidence is I would have a lot more understanding for that viewpoint if we still had that system, because there would be no paper record to support that the vote was done correctly. It really would be whether or not it was correct. There was there would be no and I've used this word a few times. There would be no objective way to prove that, which is concerning so so yeah we, we dodged a bullet on that one by by getting our system in place for this election wow can i ask because i think you you alluded to it which is you know the state went for biden and u.s senate seats uh, went for the democrats but you are still operating in the minority in the state legislature under a republican governor how do you square the events at the Capitol, these now potentially new efforts to suppress votes with your attempt to try to move some legislation forward? It's going to require Republican cooperation if you want to move things forward that benefit the people of your state. What are you doing to sort of uh, reconcile and move forward when everybody seems so divided and everything is so polarized? That's, that is the question I think of our times is how do we find a way to be productive with people who see the world differently than us when there is so much distrust, there is so much polarization. And, and really it's, it's not just that there's polarization, it's that there's negative polarization, meaning that people really don't like those that see the world differently than them. So to paint the picture for your listeners, is Georgia, notwithstanding that we voted for Biden and Harris, and then now we'll have two U.S. Democratic senators, is all of our statewide offices, all of our statewide offices at the state level are held by Republicans. And that's been the case for a while. And then the, in the General Assembly, the Senate is strongly in Republican control. And then the same thing for the Georgia House is we have 180 members and 77 are Democrats. That's much better than when I started. When I started in 2011, after being elected in 2010, we had 60 members. So we were exactly at, at the threshold to, if we stayed committed as a caucus to stop constitutional measures. So it's good that we have some room, but I can't pass anything on my own. That's not possible. If I only have 77 votes, it's not going anywhere. We need 91. So the the way that I've always kind of operated was to be, or has been to be very principled in the way that I conduct myself and very values based on the issues that I care about. I've gotten into some of the biggest fights. By way of example, we had a, a, a years-long fight over campus carry. I gave a couple of very strong speeches against that measure. Among other things, I highlighted how in the 1800s at the University of Virginia, 
they considered whether or not to have guns on the campus of the University of Virginia in, in the 1800s and present was James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. So for those that care about the founder's intent, you actually know what the founder's intent was because they told us and they decided that they did not want weapons on the campus of the University of Virginia in the early 1800s, which was a very different time than, than us today. And so uh, I made that argument among others. I cited Antonin Scalia, the most conservative jurist on the Supreme Court at the time, and his opinion that the Supreme Court has always sort of regulated and approved reasonable regulations of time and place. But I didn't make it personal. I focused on the ideas. Uh, I did my homework. And what was interesting was on the campus carry fight, the author of the bill came up to me afterwards and said, I really enjoyed what you said. Like, I don't agree with it, but I really enjoyed what you said and appreciate your viewpoint on this. And so I've always tried to separate the politics from the personal and not demonize people that see the world differently than me. And, and it's worked. It, it, it's helped me to build really strong relationships. And then when I've had ideas that I want to move prospectively, I haven't made the enemies that could be roadblocks and stop my things from moving. And then I've built up just a lot of trust with my colleagues that has paid dividends. And I've been able to move quite a few bills and some of them have been really consequential. But I think that, you know, the bigger question that you ask, and it's something that I'm wrestling with is just how to, how to square the different things that I believe in, which are, uh, I believe in reconciliation, I believe in redemption, but at the same token, I believe in accountability. And for the events that happen in DC, I really think that there needs to be accountability for us to move forward. And there needs to be trust and there needs to be truth. And, And I think that there is truth. It's just a lot of people aren't willing to accept it and acknowledge it. So, yeah, that's that's probably how I would I would address that. It's it's tough. I mean, it's just you know I was talking to my students about it, and you know if you study theories of democracy, you it requires norms and laws and respects for norms and laws, which the shortcut for that is accountability, but it also requires mutual toleration, which is difficult to do when you have people who are inciting riots and causing death and and not engaging with the truth. I don't know how you square it. It'll be interesting, and maybe we'll get you back on after the end of the legislative session so you can talk about that process you went through and what the result was as you tried to find the balance that I think many Americans are struggling to figure out right now. Can I talk about your path into elective office? You had a long career in the military. You were a practicing attorney with a law firm. Why did you decide to uh, to inflict politics on your on your life for the last decade? <laughs> That's a good description. Inflict. The really honest and simple answer is, I, I love people, and I think you should be in this business if you love people. And then 
I, I find public policy problems to be the most interesting problems to solve because they tend to be multidimensional. They tend to be complex and they tend to require a fair amount of intellectual curiosity. And there's often just lots of reasons for, for outcomes. Take education, take healthcare. I, I just find it really interesting. And it's, it's something that kind of feeds my soul in terms of the work of finding issues where you can really help improve people's lives and make a, a meaningful difference. And just the subject matter is fun for me. So it, it's almost like an avocation or something that I would probably do anyway, just because it, it really just gives me great, great joy to, to kind of be in the mix. Now, granted, the, the politics and the sort of nastiness, I think all of us could do without, but where else can you implement policies that, that really make a huge difference? And, and I'll tell you like something that happened to me just a couple of weeks ago that just really got to me. And, and, and I think speaks about this. I, I worked on a bill a few years ago to help victims of domestic violence uh, break their leases. The idea is a pretty simple one, that if somebody's in a bad situation and a barrier is economic for them to get to safety, let's try to do something systemically to help so that way people can get to safety. So I worked on this bill for two years with like the apartment association and realtors and everything else. It takes the backside of legislation takes a ton of time and relationship building and everything else, but it passed and I was really happy that it passed and I knew that it would make a difference. I had a call with a sexual assault and domestic violence group uh, that wanted to talk to me before this legislative session and they mentioned to me the bill and how many people they know that it's helped. And it was, it was really just powerful to kind of hear that of knowing that the work that we do changes people's lives and, and really makes a difference without sounding trite, like really makes a difference. And I, I was I was surprised at how much it hit me when I heard that of just knowing from the abstract to the real that something that I worked on has helped those who really need to be helped. Uh, it gave them the opportunity to move on. So I'm, I'm proud of that. And, and I've also had some successes in, in other areas too, but the, the background to get there, my military time, it is it served me really well and it's it's again pretty simple. Like what I learned was just the basics, which used to be so obvious and seem less obvious today, which are be honest, lead from the front, take responsibility. When you mess up, like tell the truth. Uh, about messing up and take ownership on it and then make sure that doesn't happen again. And, and so just those core kind of principles of, of really character and service-based leadership have served me, I think, exceptionally well. And 
I love being in the Army. I, I had a very unique career where I served six years, but I deployed three times in a row. I deployed to Bosnia from 2000 to 2001, and then my wife and I got married in the summer of 2001, and I got reassigned. I was with the 3rd Infantry Division for Bosnia, and then I was reassigned to 3rd Army, which Patton, among others, he commanded in World War II, so sort of a, a pretty famous unit. It was a three-star level, and I remember I signed in, and the first two weeks were like a picnic and a Braves game, and I thought, wow, this is kind of cool and different from what I had been used to in the Army, and then 9-11 happened, and uh, after that happened, our unit was responsible for the Horn of Africa through the Middle East to the stands. So we deployed in the fall of 2001, and I worked for the three-star who commanded all ground forces during the invasion of Afghanistan. I worked on all the front page issues of that conflict. And then after, after that, I was reassigned to work on the invasion plan for Iraq. For what it's worth, I had a lot of misgivings about the Iraq War from the planning stages all the way up until the invasion, but I was part of the staff, and and so I participated in that conflict as well. So the first two years that I was married, I, I spent very little time with my wife, hardly any holidays and stuff. I was gone for almost all of it. So when I got back, she kindly suggested that I find a new line of work, and I went to go work at a, at a law firm, and I, I still practice law, and I love it. But it didn't it didn't feed my soul enough, like just writing briefs and that kind of thing. It's important work, but it doesn't have the context of being able to shape things that are bigger than any of us. And so that's that's what appealed to me about politics was having the ability to get into a space where I could do um, something on a scale that's just a little bit bigger than the individual or, or even like your neighborhood or community. And um and I've really enjoyed it. I really have. You've led a life of service and character, but politics is a rough business. And, you know, when you make mistakes, as all human beings do, uh, it gets weaponized against you or even your your service and your efforts get twisted and torn apart. How do you keep going when when that those incidents occur and helping women who are victims of domestic violence be able to break their leases, you know, that's a meaningful step, but does it, does it always match with the, the unfun part of our current political climate? Up until now, yes. The answer has been yes. Otherwise, at, at, at the point where the frustration is, is greater than the sense that I'm making a difference, that's when, that's when I'll walk away. But you're right, and there's no sort of hiding it, is that this is this is a rough and tumble business. And I'll give you an example. When I when I ran for re-election in 2012, I was the top target of the Republican Party in Georgia. Not an exaggeration. It was just that seat was designed by the Republicans to be their number one Republican pickup. And by way of example, there's I think 10 precincts in the state of Georgia or at that time that were split precincts and eight of the 10 were in the district that I was going to represent. So that gives you a sense that like communities were, were cut off, which you can do with data these days, you know, who lives in what houses um, and their voting records and stuff. 
So it was a very, very tough election. They spent a lot of money. Um, they had TV commercials. They had lots of mailers. And they accused me of all kinds of things. They accused me of fraud because I've defended people in my securities practice that are uh, accused of that. They, they ran a TV commercial that I, I spoke against drug testing for welfare benefits because it made me really angry that we would <laughs> we would pick on poor people who receive tax benefits and let everybody else who receives tax benefits alone and infer that because you're poor, you're more likely to use drugs than anybody else that receives a tax benefit. So I gave a speech and um, uh, I railed against it pretty hard and said, of course, this is also unconstitutional and it's going to fail. And they took one of the things that I talked about because I'd referenced how I would have to take drug tests when I was in the military and they totally just lied. And they said that I used drugs when I was on active duty in the army. And, and, and they ran a commercial that actually said that. And it was, it was pretty astonishing. And it made me really angry. And I'm probably, <laughs> I'm probably one of the few who can honestly say that, like, I've never used drugs. And I mean, if you know me, I'll have drinks. And uh, so I'm not a teetotaler or anything like that. But I enlisted at 18 and I got out at 30. So if you've never used drugs like from 18 to 30, you're not you're not <laughs> likely to start after that when you're yeah. a parent, you know. So so I'd never used anything, and and I don't think that you would get an honorable discharge and sort of have the military career that I had, where I was personally selected to advise two three-star generals during conflicts uh, if, if I had those type of issues, but. What I did was the way that I handled it was I, I demanded accountability. I called them out and I was honest and, and I was very forceful, but I was honest about what took place. And down the road, I've had a number of other instances at the General Assembly where I, I just I've told the truth and my Republican colleagues just know that I'm not going to play a lot of the games that other people play. And because of that, they trust me. And, and I'll give you a quick example is I was working on this bill in 2016 on sexual assault kits and it passed unanimously in the house and it went over to the Senate. And when it went to the Senate, the chair wouldn't give the bill a hearing. And it was just total BS it was politics of she wanted to, to carry the bill or she didn't want me to be successful for carrying a bill, both of which are ridiculous. So I told her, look, if it's me carrying the bill, then you take it. Like it's a good idea, but we should pass it. And it got very, very public. It got very, very nasty. She accused me of, um, <laughs> of wanting to pass a bill to make it to make myself feel good. And <laughs> that, that was not why I was trying to pass a bill to help survivors of sexual assault. I had no relationship with our Speaker of the House up until that point, but he watched how I handled it and saw that I stayed laser focused on the issues and what I was trying to accomplish. And then we had some private conversations where he could see that I was earnest and sincere in terms of what I was trying to do and, and how I wanted to do it. And ultimately he wound up being my closest partner in that effort and, and called out 
a member of his own party for what she was saying uh, in opposition, which takes a lot of guts in today's political environment. It is not easy to call out somebody from your own party, even if they deserve it. But he did it for me, a member of the opposing party. And really he did it because it was the right thing to do for this bigger issue. And since then, we've been able to pair on a lot of meaningful legislation and, and also make sure that like our budget puts these dollars in. So I think the lessons, if there are any, are that just kind of doing the basics can really serve you well. I think Trump is really, and sorry to even mention his name, we had done pretty well without mentioning his name. But I think he's such an aberration in terms of like a truly dishonest person who still motivates his base. I, I don't really understand how, but I think most people... Most people still want folks who just are, are, are kind of good, reasonable people and, and will tell the truth and, and are willing to work with you and listen and, and, and not stab somebody you know, behind the back, which is another thing that I just don't do. I just don't play a lot of the political games. I have no interest in it. Thank you. That's as if Georgia hasn't given us all enough hope. Your stories of just basic decency and getting things done for people are are just a little more you know, icing on the cake from the state of Georgia. I guess like ice cream on the on the peach pie. So, um, what what do you see as next for yourself as as you navigate around a state that's obviously going through tremendous changes? And uh, how do you see your, your role in in all that? For the short term, I'm going to stay where I am. I, I really I really like being a state legislator. I think state and local governments are where the action is. They, they may be less prestigious than being in the federal government, but they are places where if you want to work on policy and you want to help people, like you can do it, and you can do it in a big, meaningful way. And Georgia's not small. I know where you're from is not small either. Uh, but we're we're a state of over 10 million people. So if you can impose policies that help that scale of people, that's that's pretty awesome. So I I, I enjoy the legislative process. Uh, I'm I'm pretty effective at it too. So for now, that's kind of where I want to be. And then I, I don't know if I might take a look at something down the road, but just whenever you're making these decisions, they can't be divorced from your personal life. And I practice law. I really enjoy doing that. We do a lot of pro bono and public service work at our law firm. And that's part of um, our DNA and, and our mindset. We really enjoy helping folks. And I've always represented veterans since I've left active duty. That's something that's important to me. But then with, with my children, I want to be around and available. And so the the ability to serve at the state level, and I live in Atlanta, um, and I get to come home every night when we're in the legislature. It's kind of a perfect fit where I can I can help my state, I can work on policy, which I find fascinating and interesting, but I can still play an important role within my family, an involved role within my family. So so for now, that's where I am. I don't know if I might take a look at something, you know, down the road. That's certainly certainly possible, but 
it's it's not something I'm going to be doing in, in the short term. And the good thing is, is Georgia is pretty loaded in terms of a bench right now. We have lots of really good, talented people. So I think there's plenty of folks who can step up and do a great job. And I'm looking forward to, among others, like uh, – Stacey Abrams is going to run for governor in 2022. And if she wins, it would be pretty great to be one of the House members who can help her push an agenda for the state uh, after her election. That would be amazing. I'm almost ready to pick up stakes, move to Georgia to help on that, uh, to help in that election. Uh, (laughs) She's so inspiring. Yeah. So I just want to take a moment and just, you know, I think the, the podcast is called an honorable profession. We strive in the new deal to recognize uh, leaders who who act honorably. You've been a longtime model for a lot of us, and I just want to appreciate uh, everything you've done and, you know, the work that you and so many others did in your state to, uh, to not only help the state of Georgia, but but to help the rest of us and, in fact, the rest of the world. It's a it's a it's a big it's a big gift you all uh, gave, and and we're grateful. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Scott Holcomb. Thank you for being on our own profession. And uh, I look forward, once we all get these vaccines, to seeing you at the next uh, New Deal conference. Likewise. Me too. I appreciate that. And I really love being part of the New Deal. I think it's, it's, it's a tremendous organization with just super people. And I always come away from when we get together being really energized and motivated. Um, I, I, in fact, I, I don't know a better group of people that I'm associated with. We're just really folks that are committed to their communities, to their state and to the country. It's, it's just outstanding. So I'm really, really proud to be part of it. And it's, it's brought me so many great friends to include yourself. So I can't say, say enough good things about it. Thank you. We'll keep up the good work and uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.